You're listening to Neurodiversity at Work. Welcome to today's episode, sponsored and powered by Dynamis Group. Recently honoured to be part of 300 years of leadership and innovation. We at Dynamis believe that business is a catalyst for positive impact in the world. By building a bridge between the top leaders of today and the brightest leaders of tomorrow. We inspire them to do things they have never done before. Tom! Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Neurodiversity, eliminating kryptonite and enabling superheroes. Or just enabling people to do stuff they're good at and making them feel good about themselves. However you want to define it, right? This is the podcast where we talk about neurodiversity. And I bring on incredible guests like Tom to chat about their background, their experiences, and what it means to them. So I was lucky enough to meet Tom almost a year ago now um, at the ADHD Foundation Neurodiversity Celebration event, which was amazing. Uh, Tony Lloyd uh, celebrating neurodiversity, uh, and I was blessed to be able to have a bit of time with Tom. We agreed to do the podcast then. Bro, I don't know what happened. Like, ADHD happened, right? And (laughs) And the reality that... Tom has been a very busy boy. So, we're going to get into it. Tom, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Let them know who you are or what you're about and why you're here. Yeah, thank you very much, Theo, and thank you for the lovely warm welcome. And describe, I just describe myself as getting harder and harder as time goes on. Um, as of Friday last week, I am now Dr. Tom Nicholson, PhD. I... Uh, after a long journey of five years um, past my PhD, Viber with no amendment. And so to kind of give an idea of who I am and what I do, I've, I've, I wear multiple hats. So my, my day-to-day job, my full-time job is I am an academic. I'm a lecturer of mental health nursing at Northumbria University. So I teach nurses, kind of like how to be nurses. Um, on my research side, I my PhD was on the narratives and stories of the ADHD diagnostic journey of parents. So what's it like to be a parent going through that diagnostic journey from how does your story change about yourself and about your children pre-diagnostically when you're on that long waiting list, when you're on that long assessment pathway where you don't know what's really happening, how does that story and journey change when you become a, when you get that diagnosis and what does the story change at the time of diagnosis? And then what's it like six months later? You know, you've lived with that diagnosis, you've lived with that experience. What happens then? How does your story change? How does your voice change? So that's my sort of day job. Uh, Separately, I have my own business where I deliver, um, I'm a public speaker and I deliver neurodiversity training into schools, uh, healthcare organizations, business, kind of anyone who will have us about how to make environments more neuroinclusive, neurodiversity friendly, uh, psychoeducation on ADHD and autism. Um, pr- again, pretty much anything in that neurodiversity world I, I'll, I'll get involved with in, su- in some way, shape and form. And then historically, I was, I'm a mental health nurse by background and I worked in the uh, neurodevelopmental assessment team for Newcastle and Gateshead. So it was the sort of assessment, diagnosis and intervention. Now I'm, I'm using the term intervention in quotation marks here because historically and systemically in the UK, there's actually very little post-diagnostic intervention for our ADHDers. So that's what I'm doing a lot more on my business side of things, is trying to plug that gap a little bit. And again, if you haven't, if people haven't realised by this point already, uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was six. Um, I have lived my life as a neurodivergent person. A neurodiver- I, I, used, I used to always told my, call myself neurodiverse, but... I'm changing that language now to neurodivergent. Um, had a 
terrible time at school. Uh, I've been medicated as a child and then unmedicated for 20 years and then recommenced medication during my PhD because doing a PhD in the middle of a national lockdown and then having a um, my firstborn son being born was pretty hard. <laughs> so that's me. Um, that's as succinctly as I think I can describe myself nowadays. That's lovely. Uh, that's a great introduction. And uh, it's incredible. You know, and I, I'm... Oh, I, I, do I say I'm surprised? Well, I am. Yeah, I'm surprised. Maybe because I, it's me reflecting on myself and my own journey. By how many incredible people, ADHDers, NDers, however you want to define yourself or how somebody wants to define themselves, who do PhDs and, you know, do academically brilliant and do wonderful, incredible work quietly in the background. And also, and and this is I'm less um, surprised about because it's reflected in my own journey and career, like pivot. Pivot all the time, pivot, pivot, pivot. You know, yeah, or the things you've mentioned there, you know, so much, so many people could only dream about achieving and doing so many things. And I think the PhD fascinates me because I didn't do a, um, I, I didn't do a BA honors degree. So I, I've, I've never written, right? I've never had to write until I wrote the book and that's 110,000 words. So tell us Tom, right? Tell us a little bit about how an ADHD, first of all, um, take something like that on, um, a very important topic as well, um, and, and manages to deliver it in the way that you've delivered it, whilst having a baby at the end. Bad idea. Do not, I'd not, not recommend it. You know, I, I think in general, a PhD is a hard thing to recommend unless you are a particular type of obsessional. Um, and... For me, to even explain how I got into that journey, I think I have to go further back because, you know, I was, I had a really terrible time at school. I I hated school, but loved learning. You know, I I was the, I was on the special educational needs register, but I was the the naughty child. I was the scapegoat. I was constantly in trouble. Um, in my training, I, I, I bring my old school reports and I, I have them open here if you ever if you want to end up talking about them, about the narratives and the stories that I was given about myself, about how I was a bad student. I was difficult to teach. You know, I was lazy. And so that was my sort of educational narrative for most of my schooling until about high school. And I think part of what happened was this, this desire to prove people wrong, this desire to you know show that you can. And something else happened around that sort of high school time where I was, a couple of teachers recognised that I have some, some really strong academic strengths. I know I, I really struggle in some areas. My ADHD is, is quite impairing in some areas. But in other areas, I was really, really academically strong. And I was put onto the Gifted and Talented programmes. I was put onto the Young, Young Gifted and Talented National Academy for Gifted and Talented Youth. I was sent to Oxford on this like aspiration day from, as one of the few people in the northeast. I live up in Newcastle in the northeast of England. Um, and started getting this counter-narrative of, you know what, you can do things, you can be good at things. So I did quite well in my A-levels. No homework, No, did, never did any homework, never did any of the... I would refuse to do uh, mock exams. I just, like, was... The, I was a terrible student, quote-unquote. But I did really well in my, when it actually came down to crunch time to the performance of the exams and assignments. Then I went to my first degree. So my first degree, my undergrad, my first undergrad was in ancient history, which I did because I read a book a fiction book about the Romans and found it really interesting. So I decided to do a degree in it. Like, you know, it was such a ADHD thing, isn't it? Really? Um, got my first degree in ancient history, loved it, went into the workplace um, as a support worker in for people with brain injuries and realised that I loved that. I loved this work, um, supporting people and helping people. And I was like, well, I got antsy and I got frustrated with the sort of the systemic barriers and the lack of power that you have as a um, as a support worker in some areas where I, w- I would think you know I can do this better I, I feel like this can be done better so what do you do you how do you get the next rung of the ladder let's become a nurse so then I did my undergr- my, uh, my BSc uh, mental health nursing became a qualified nurse and um, did very well academically on that and um, got a really really high sort of mark 
And again, what what I've found across the years is like, I can't put up a shelf. I am terrible with my hands. I am not good at sort of, I don't have a lot of common sense. Um, but I'm very, very, I'm very good at the sort of conceptual, sort of theoretical thinking. And my writing's all pretty good as well. And I, and I enjoy the process of just learning and challenging and debating and questioning. And in academia, that's a, that's a really good sort of perspective to come from. So because I did so well in my nursing undergrad, I thought, well, you have know, always wanted to do a PhD. Now, I had no concept of what a PhD was growing up. I had no concept of, that I'm the only person in my family to have an undergraduate degree. You know, I'm, I'm the black sheep in my family because I have been in higher education. And I, I said, I, I, like, I want to do a PhD. I don't really know what it is. I don't really know what the expectations are, but that's what I, I want to be a doctor. So I, I applied for a PhD um, in, a, in a role at the university without having a master's. I went straight from undergraduate degree to PhD, which again is very atypical. It's, it's, just, it's, one of, it's just one of those ADHD things where even though places say, oh, I, I wouldn't recommend doing this, I kind of just tried it anyway, a bit impulsively, just, you know what, let's see if we can do it, let's see if we can get involved. And started the PhD journey um was was successful at interview um got a job at the university as an academic and started that phd journey and there's a lot i could talk about there so i'm curious about what direction you want to want us to go here because that first year was very challenging <laughs> and what would yeah let's let's dive into that a bit then so when you take yourself out into this new world of deep diving in, uh, and researching and working in academia, a complete switch really, when you think around kind of mental health, nurse, I would imagine, you know, you're thinking much more of a hands-on job to, yeah. a, to a sitting down in front of a computer writing job, you know what? Tell, tell me a little bit about the emotions, the challenges, the feelings, and, and how you overcame some of those. Well, I think all PhDs, all people on a PhD journey experience some level of imposter syndrome. You know, it's it's almost part and parcel of it. But I think as an ADHD, as, as, a, as someone who is neurodivergent, we get that anyway. We get that in every context. You know, you, you feel like because you've had this narrative, this early life narrative of um, not literally being the problem, being bad, being wrong, be, something being wrong with you, being deficited, that that sits with you. You know, I heard a quote a few years ago that was, we carry our school bags for life. And it's very much been my experience of never quite feeling good enough in, in the in, in academia, in my in my work, in my degrees, always feeling like, oh yeah, but I'm probably gonna fail this one, or I'm not gonna be very good at this one. But also intellectually knowing that I am quite good academically. And so the feelings in that first year of a PhD was very much thinking, how am I going to do this? Because it's, five, I did it part-time because I was working at the university at the same time, so five years. And the basic premise is you've got five years to create something original to create this original contribution to knowledge. I have an 85,000 word thesis and off you go. What do you want to do? You know, the, 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 lack, the lack of direction makes it both incredible and amazing as an opportunity and also terrifying because there are so many things you can talk about, so many directions you can go in. Um, that first year, my PhD is sort of steeped in a thing called medical sociology, which is how we conceptualize illness in society. I mean, what, how do we see ADHD? Do we see it in this like sort of disability narrative? Do we see it as a neurodiversity paradigm uh, superpower? How do, how do people sort of oscillate between these concepts? How do you make sense of that? So it, again, my PhD is quite theoretical in that way, which is, which is amazing because as an ADHD, you get to have so many conversations. You know, that is one of the things that people don't realize, I think sometimes about doing a PhD is that 
you just get your part of your job is to talk is to have conversations with very clever people around the world and to share ideas now putting that into writing afterwards is can be quite hard but yeah there's um the feelings throughout and then even on the on friday when i had my viva you have this overwhelming knowledge of knowing that you know your stuff you know your thesis inside out you know it you 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 feel like an expert in this area and yet how attentive am i going to be am i going to be inattentive during that vibe it's it's going to be a long time am i going to be able to bring practically my knowledge into play in that very tight confined context like when you're a school child you know going into an exam you might have all the knowledge but applying that knowledge can sometimes be quite tricky so yeah it's it's that's the emotional element i think cuz it's it's interesting just a, a point there um about the the conversations and obviously for for some ADHD people there's a lot of energy that can come from conversations especially if you're talking to people to stuff you're passionate about right it's like mm-hmm. oh, I, I i almost like whenever i sit with somebody who's ADHD you can feel the energy just going up and up and up mm-hmm. and it's almost explosive and you can like like with Amanda bottling that and getting that written down into written form actually creates a very from from what other people say a very powerful um, narrative because there's a lot of emotion in that and a positive emotion um which it, it doesn't mean you don't have to balance so uh, you know you being a mental health nurse it sounds like your journey has created a lot of natural empathy which i can really associate with which and then you you're using that um the the connections between some of your challenges and the stigma and the frustration and the lack of understanding and you're using that as real lived experience and, and high levels of empathy to connect and to support with other people do you find that you were able to um get that in into your writing uh, and, and into your research yeah oh you know what this is one of the most fascinating things and the most exciting thing to think about a phd which you don't get in sort of that undergraduate uh, or even like masters level is that there is a there is an expectation in your thesis that you do the thing called reflexivity and reflexivity is is being able to acknowledge your perspective your journey and where you're coming from in the sort of development of the research in the analysis of the research so i had a statement a full statement that talked about you know a bit about my journey my adhd journey a bit about my perspective and even in the thesis i wrote about the fact that my perspective of medication and myself changed during the research project because of the the stories that parents were telling me so the the absolutely there is this like emotional thread of self that you're able to draw upon you don't have to push that away and hide it like you would at uh, in in sort of other parts of academia or in other parts of writing is actually that 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 is part of it and that shows that you have that sort of criticality and that ability to acknowledge your biases or your perspective and again like for a long time i struggled with medication and myself i i was say i was medicated as a child um to some to decent effect um and i think like many of us the synonymization the linking of medication and some sort of personal failure some sort of personal failing was a big issue for me for all, all of my 20s where i acknowledged that i i found things really hard but i didn't want to take medication cuz because I, I felt like that was an ex- I wanted to be this new diversity advocate who was like fighting like we don't need to change anything like like you know we are have these wonderful strengths which we do but then in the uh, sort of doing of the the research what i acknowledge is our parents who were having this these same thought processes they were coming with the same conundrums and they were accepting that you can have these amazing strengths but also acknowledge the 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 level of the impairments in some areas and so my own perspective of my own medication changed and I recommenced medication during the PhD and actually found it really helpful um 
like I, I would have been living life on a harder mode unnecessarily for a lot, quite a long period of time. And it's funny how your personal perspectives, even as a clinician, as a clinician, I would be recommending treatment. I would be recommending those things. But when it comes to yourself, there's always that barrier that comes up. And as I say, I, I was able to write about this in the thesis to say this is how the research has not only I've had an impact, but also how it's impacted me and my own journey. That that is amazing. And you know what? I've I've um, I, I heard um, Nancy Doyle was talking on the radio recently, um, literally just as I drove to, to have this conversation today. And she was talking about the the positive shift that we're now having. Is because I, I mean I'm, I, I'm not I'm not referencing exactly right because my brain is, is slightly missed it in terms of exactly what I've said. But ultimately, what I found fascinating is the the big impact that's being made in the neurodiversity space at the moment is researchers, academics, PhDs being written through lived experience, being written by people who are autistic, who are ADHD, who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent, whatever your preference terminology. They you know that is making a big big shift because we're moving away from um, uh, somebody who's autistic or ADHD looks like this, and that's how we assess them, to somebody who ADHD or autistic may feel this way. They may see lights. This is referring to exactly what Nancy said. They see lights brighter, they hear noise louder. They, you know, So the, that physiological impact of, of how somebody feels and being able to bring that into the research, which is what you're talking about there. And that, that is that is like evolving and changing as you write it is just beautifully powerful. And I had the same experience whilst writing the, the book it, it, very much. Mm. And even if I didn't change my, some of my views, it absolutely um, gave me other perspectives so that I was able to communicate my views in a better way so that they could be heard um, yeah. because there's a, still a lot of difficulty around communication right people thinking you don't agree with them when you do or that you your nuanced view is completely opposed to this when it's not it's just we're we're trying to explore these ideas in a world that is moving and adapting very quickly right yeah i've got i've got sort of two points from that the, the first is um like in my thesis i i try to create a new like what I call the social science of ADHD this like new concept of trying to marry the sort of biological medical perspective perspective of ADHD that neurodevelopmental disorders perspective which you know has some real problems with it but I think can also when used correctly can have some benefits to us as neurodivergence to to say you know actually in some contexts this is impairing you know in some contexts I, I need reasonable adjustments and from a medical perspective that can be sometimes helpful but also how do we marry that with the new diversity paradigm this positive paradigm how do we find this like nuanced perspective in the middle which is what I'm really interested in because I think polarizing it and, and having purely neurodiverse perspectives or purely medical perspectives I think miss some of the potential crossover that is there so I think there is this more, as you say, nuanced perspective that that is hard to get across in on Twitter, hard to get across on LinkedIn, is hard without these like sort of long form conversations because it it is more complicated than that. Like, the concept of disability is is much more complicated than just saying I don't like disability as a concept. I don't like the language of disability, but actually sometimes that language can be helpful to say this environment disables me. Not I am a disabled person, but this environment disables me, um, whereas this and other environment enables me. That's one thing uh, has had my other point. He has an ADHD tangent and probably one of the most ADHD research stories you'll hear for a while. Um, my friend and a colleague, I say my friend, not me and a colleague, um, did this, what's called a systematic review, which is a huge piece of like a literature review where you we read, oh, like we looked at like 10,000 research articles abstracts were like trying and, and what it was on was on the what are the positives of adhd symptoms what are the positives about having adhd what are the positives in that adhd world um in the research and we spent an honor like about 10 months doing this piece of work and what we found is and i don't have the exact numbers on us but it was very 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 few about one in 
1,200 papers found any positive of ADHD in the research. And what we found in that research was that researchers weren't even asking the question. And that's linking back to what you said about, you know, now having ADHD as uh, autistic people um, doing the research themselves, because nobody was even asking the question, what are the positives? It was always, how does it impact you? What are the negatives? What's hard about it? What are the problems? But if you don't search for positives, you don't find them. Um, and like not, not a lot anyway. So we, we wrote this, this, this systematic review. We did all the work we did. We had it ready to start writing to publish. And because we both have ADHD and then national lockdown happened, we just didn't write it. And now the data is slightly out of date in the, because we wrote it in like, I think 2020, 2019. So now the systematic review is out of date and we haven't gotten back together to actually publish it. So again, like 10 months of work, that was really interesting. And then we just, it just flitted away because we both, we both are ADHDers. We had so many other players struggling at the time. And that's what also sometimes happens. You know, you put so much work into something, but you don't get your outputs. And, and those, and what you're talking about there, around the time that you're talking about is the, the exact time that I was experiencing the same thing. Now, I wasn't looking at academic papers in the, to the extent that you were. I, as a recruitment leader, was looking for information to inform me that I could implement into recruitment onboarding practices and HR practices, because that's what, that was my job. And I was a part of a big community of other recruitment leaders, and I thought I could really influence here. And that's all I could find, long lists by academics and um, educational psychologists and whoever else, right? Anybody who wrote about this stuff was researchers writing about it in a negative context or, or in medical context, however you want to define it, right? For me, it feels negative because when you're always talking about someone's challenges, that that feel that doesn't feel very nice and feel very welcoming. Doesn't mean it's not true that I may struggle, I may have anxiety and uh, the challenges that I've had, and you know. But I, like I've, I've had them all my life. I don't need to be talking about you know being depressed every single day of my life because I was depressed for a bit. I don't need to talk about being angry because at some points I've been angry to the extent of it's been you know bad for me and other people like i don't want to be talking about that stuff all the time because actually that drags me back into a place of negativity and and that is uh, so i i why did you publish that research that was, that was brilliant but uh, but i know why you didn't publish it because i have the same experiences the amount of things that i think are brilliant i put lots of energy and effort in and i either don't press the button to get it live which it takes one percent of what it took to create it or I press the button, but don't do the work to get it out there. You know, like putting a new website, but they're not telling anybody where it is. So it's like, I built it and no, they won't just come. <laughs> I need to go find them and drag them to it to show them. And so they go, wow. So I, I so like connect and empathize and appreciate uh, <laughs> where you're coming from there. But it also goes to show you the value, the hidden value, right, of, of ND people is that often if you don't support them in activating some of the things that they're creating, what you may find is that they fail as an employee, as a dad, as a son, as a whatever, right? You, you, because they, they, they are, it's not they're not creating, it's not they're not working, it's not they're not doing. They may be working harder than anybody else, but what they may not be doing is that final piece of activating. And therefore people don't get to see the wonderful creation because and, and if you've not been shown previously like you had a tough upbringing or school was tough if nobody's shown you the way to write an essay how do you ever know to write an essay like on, on a baseball yeah. you know i mean i mean not only that i think for me the one of the things i've been talking about a lot is when i go into schools and i do training in the schools about it's the way people are punished adhd as are punished in schools you know, the, the amount of stories I hear about ADHD, people, children with a diagnosis of ADHD being punished for standing up in class, which is a core symptom of hyperactivity that we look for in the DIVA assessment for adult ADHD. And having 
children punished for shouting out, children punished for fiddling with their, their, their toys. So that, that, that there's not only are you having this like negative punishment based um, experience of here's all the things you're doing wrong. What also happens is, you know, our, our ADHD is we more often than not go into non-traditional job roles. I mean, just look at the two of us here. I'm a professional public speaker, lecturer. You do about a, a hundred different things. I don't even know what I do. I, 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 I couldn't even describe what you do in like a sentence. There's, there's so many things that you do. We, we, we are in so many different worlds at the same time, a lot of, a lot of us anyway. Um, but if, you're, if you've got a child who, who drums too much, taps too much, but actually how many of our world famous drummers are neurodiverse or neurodivergent? Uh, our artists, oh, you're doodling too much in class, but actually where is the space in our system to allow for mind wandering, to allow for doodling, to allow for talking and debating, to allow for fidgeting for the when you become the yo-yo champion of the world, to allow for people to explore and experience things that are not academically important, but are career level important because people... You know, being a YouTuber, being a podcaster, being a um, musician, being an artist, being being all these unusual th things, these atypical things, are careers now. They are careers. My career is to talk. And yet, for my entire schooling, I was told that I talked too much. Like, oh, you need to show up, Tom. You know, you're talking too much. You need to be quiet. Whereas now, people ask me to come in and talk for six hours on a topic that is my my area of specific interest is my obsession so i can stay super passionate throughout all of that and i think there's not only this this space as you say about not having being able to be activated by environments but there's also this active deactivation there's like deactivation that happens with people where they are you are told that you shouldn't doodle drum tap beatbox uh, be on your phone all the time you shouldn't play too many video games and i'm like well how many of our professional video game players are neurodivergent? Like, the when I think we need to look at things differently. And and the word I'm looking for here is it's kind of escaping me is assess things differently. You know about what does it mean to be successful? But unfortunately, what we are seeing as well is, is academia and academic achievement is becoming more important in schools because they're oversubscribed teachers are bless them are, are run ragged they've got so much more than they've ever had to do that to have that nuanced teaching perspective is really tricky as well and we, you know we're also struggling with um you know if we think of special educational needs um there are some children that are not getting the access to support that they need because of oversubscription uh, and therefore they're ending up in mainstream schools and then they're not, they're getting, they're ending up getting the same challenges that um, a lot of us faced, right, when there was a lack of recognition or, or, or appreciation. And the problem is some of those children have massive other barriers, um, you know, in terms of their home life, socioeconomic challenges, um, all, all these other things that they have to deal with outside of a school environment. And then they're coming into a school environment that is not the safe haven, safe space that they need. They're then getting told to sit down and shut up. And then if they're needing to use up some energy because they've misbehaved in school or whatever you want to define it as, they then get told to sit outside the headmaster's um, classroom during lunchtime, the time when they get to use up some of the energy. So what, what you know, you if, if you if you like glue the pot on and then you boil the water at some point, it's going to go... Yeah, and that's what's happening. It is, and again, I think it's often there. It's these policy, there's policies that are um, inflexible policies. You know, one of the things that really it actually upsets me a little bit is this this concept of a hundred percent achieve attendance awards. A hundred percent attendance awards are discriminatory for those because children very rarely decide to not be to not attend school. It's it's very seldom a you know, decision by the child to not attend it's if they're often very angry if they're very anxious if they've got mental health difficulties if they're new diverse and, and having a really stressful time if they're physically unwell um it, as, as you said if things aren't aren't really well good at home if there's problems at home 
And what you, you see is a, is a disabled child or a child who's considered disabled or a child with additional needs um, is you see these you see other children being awarded for something that is completely unattainable to you and no equivalent award for you, no equivalent award for going through the challenges, the additional challenges that the average person doesn't have. Um, I've been sort of talking a lot recently about, I don't know if anyone else is talking about this language, but I use the term neurotypical privilege. And the idea that there are some issues and experiences in the world that for someone who's neurotypical um, come naturally, you don't have to think about, but for those of us who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent, uh, they are additional barriers and challenges. You know, like assessing social skills during an interview for a job. A job which has no, where social skills has no bearing on the capacity to actually perform the job. You know, um, expecting children to perform in a one hour long lesson. But our neurodiverse kids don't aren't good at that. They're not able to do that. We need more breaks. I barely perform in a one hour slots you know I, I need breaks or to be able to stand up or walk around or talk and and i'm an academic but as adults we have the privilege to be able to put ourselves in environments where we can be more effective or at least some of us do not everyone has that opportunity to be fair but children very rarely have that opportunity so we need to award it to them we need to give it to them um but that requires education and training of our staff and what we what we know and what the research shows is that our our teaching staff, our nursing staff, our social workers have very low levels of confidence and competence and knowledge and understanding of ADHD and of neurodiversity more generally, um, because it's not embedded into the training into the systems. Well, and it's it's archaic now. They're training because the world is evolving at such a rapid pace. Neurodiversity is evolving at an incredible pace, right? The, the mm. conversation around it. So that if you're a, and you'll know this better than me, of course, that if you've done your training like three, four, five, ten years ago, and it's very much aligned to the medical paradigm, right, which is not, again, which is not wrong, because you need somebody who comes in and goes, I'm ADHD and I need something to help, and they're able to say, well, here's some options around technology or drugs that can support you, like that is a real need. And actually, there's a lot of parents and children and adults who and they need that because it's going to impact their mental health and well-being. They could end up in prison. They could end up in a hospital. They could end up dead. Like these are real situations. So I'm not I'm not being dismissive of that. However, if that's your only line of knowledge and expertise and it's 10 years old and then you're sat in front of somebody and, and, and you're not giving them the opportunity to understand the strengths and the opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and and your the rhetoric is don't worry that most kids grow out of ADHD <clears throat> or you, you know it's all of those because that was your training ten years ago and that's what you know about it and uh, and not everybody has the time and space to upskill themselves independently outside of this system when they're under so much pressure yeah. so I guess this this Tom this is where the world needs you this is like the world cannot live without you Tom this is this is your opportunity. This is your time, right? You can make significant influence into some of the most impactful, important areas when we consider education and the health system. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, I feel, I feel like excited, but also like it's overwhelming because you you want to help everyone. It's trying to find out where you can be most effective. I mean. I, w I want to jump back very slightly on something you said there, because I think there's a really important point here of what's happening in the neurodiversity world. I delivered a talk on uh, Tuesday last week to about 200 people. And the, what the question I asked is, how many people in the under 18 do you think fulfill the criteria for a diagnosis of ADHD according to our sort of epidemiological studies? Now, now you and I, 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 I've probably heard the number that we know of between 5 and 7%. So 1 in 20. But what was fascinating, and this happens every time I deliver a public lecture, every t every time I'm delivering, and this is to nurses, I get the same answers. This to school teachers, I get the same answers. When I ask that question, how many people do you think fulfill the criteria for diagnosis? I get answers like 40%, 60%. 66% was the highest answer I got two weeks ago. Uh, 30, 40%. Now, because neurodiversity is becoming this almost household conversation now, or at least definitely in, in the areas we are, 
I think there's a risk happening where people are assuming that for those who are diagnosed where you need to have that level of impairment, that level of difficulty, are assuming it's so much more common than it actually is. So that when someone has a diagnosis, when so, when you when you have a teacher who is um, ascribed to that medical model, and you have a child who special educational needs who has a diagnosis, you have a someone in your workforce who is ADHD asking for reasonable adjustments. If you think sixty percent of the population fulfill the diagnosis criteria, how seriously are you going to take that diagnosis, that request for reasonable adjustments? You're just not, because if you have that perception that it's so much more common than it is. To be sort of, you know, labelable or diagnosable, to use some terms that are thrown about. If you think it's 30%, you're not going to take it seriously. And I think that's where we have to be really careful in our neurodiverse world of and of the language we use when we talk about, you know, some people say everyone's neurodiverse. And, and, and yes, but not everyone is neurodivergent. Not everyone is neurodivergent at the capacity of a diagnosis to have that level of impairment either. So... For those who are impaired by their differences, you know, as, so like myself, I am impaired in some areas. We need to also acknowledge that and spread the word of that alongside that positive strength-based paradigm because we're, we might lose sight of those who need the support the most, who need I, the reasonable adjustments the most. Atif says it beautifully, uh, which is... Um... Atif Chowdhury, um, we are all neurodiverse, we're just not all marginalised by it, right? Yeah. Um, and, 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 but you said it as well, in, in, you, you know, the, the barriers, the challenges, the, that doesn't mean we're all a bit ADHD, absolutely not. But, but neurodiversity is the concept that all our brains are incredibly unique. Some of us, like we said before, are experiencing the world in a different way, and therefore that needs to be considered mm -hmm. um, and, and appreciated. The other interesting thing is, about 12 months ago, I did a little bit of research um, on TikTok, and they had 16 billion views of the hashtag ADHD. 16 billion, right? That's a lot. That was 12 months ago. How many views do you think, 12 months later, they've had of the hashtag ADHD? From 16 billion? 12 months. And 12, I, I would... We're talking now of numbers that I can't even conceptualise in my own mind that I'm scared. I, I would say at least double, but I'm expecting there might be an order of magnitude here. No, 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 no. It's not. No, no, no. It's, it, 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 it is. It, it is. In my, it's like one third more. It's 22 billion as we as we sit here today. That's in 12 months. But just in, like just to put into context, dyslexia. Right, which you would think is more prevalent, more common in understanding. It's been yeah. around longer in terms of people understanding acceptance or what have you. It's easier to get the, if not the diagnosis necessarily, because it can still be costly if you want a, a professional diagnosis. But they can use diagnostic models in schools, for example, that brings yeah. down the, the, the barrier. That was the first diagnosis my daughter got, and the one that I got first. Um, they it's been one point four billion or something like that. So so you look at dyslexia. 1.4 billion, ADHD 22 billion, and autism is around 21 billion, right? So those two are definitely taking a lot more interest and get a lot more visibility. And if you think of TikTok, the type of platform that it is, almost mm -hmm. like it's an ADHD friend, isn't it? Because like <laughs> constant yeah. like images just being thrown at you to keep the brain engaged. Um, so, but but it, there's a real risk of, of misinformation, miseducation, misinterpretation, and exactly to your point there, that misunderstanding can be translated in a belief that because there's 22 billion views, because people are seeing so much content about ADHD, yeah. you're like, oh, everyone's got ADHD now. It's like. I, I, my mate, my mate's mate, my mate's mate's mate thinks they're ADHD. We all think we're ADHD, yeah. right? That the reality is, they may all be. They may be like a, a group of friends who got together because they had energy and. But, but when that group of friends go out to the world, they all our mates are ADHD. That then does create a narrative across yeah. social media that is like you can capture it in a very small little sentence. It's it's. Um, it's what well, it's popular. It will it, it will increase. You put an image of ADHD and me, like millions of people are like it. But it is perpetuating 
the very short narrative around the impact, the strengths, the challenges in like a, an image. Or So although that's good for promoting the message, what we're saying here, Tom, is that there's a risk if we if we reverse that back into um, the, the care system around diagnosis and assumption and belief yeah. and understanding, it's a potential have a very negative impact that we need to be mindful of at the moment. De definitely, I think in in what you're saying there as well is we 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 need to be careful about platforms i think as well because you know for instance what, what i try to do in my training and my delivery is is balance between cutting edge contemporary research what do we know what and what do we not know yet the sort of clinical perspective of here's what we're thinking about clinically in psychiatry and mental health this is you know why why are people with adhd seven to eight times more likely to experience anxiety disorders is it inherently in the brain or is it because of our experiences that sort of trauma informed perspective and then also that service user lived experience, ADHD and neurodiverse perspective as well. And I think all three of those areas are important at different times and in different places. And and sometimes what can happen um, in the sort of cult of celebrity is you have uh, some celebrities who have very, very big platforms saying things that spread the message, as we say, but spread the message in a way that can also be unhelpful. That, that can be not quite as nuanced as it should be, that can miss information. I mean, what was it recently? I remember I said, I say we recently, there was a, um, I think Will I Am was, I read in a paper, talked about ADHD medication. He was said he was diagnosed with ADHD and he talked about his ADHD medication in his quite negative light. But in that article, there was no mention of the of how incredibly efficacious ADHD medication has been proven to be in multiple meta-analyses is one of the most efficacious medications that we have in psychiatry and really in, in physical health conditions as well. And I think we need to have that more, that balanced perspective of science and positive energy and social challenge and fighting stigma, fighting the status quo, but in a way that is measured for fear of shooting ourselves in the foot. And, and you're right, and because that can create stigma in itself, and a, mm -hmm. and a parent who is struggling at home with their child, uh, and that, and maybe they're a single parent as an example, and that child might be having significant challenges in the school system, whereby that child might be at risk of being excluded, and is yeah. already being uh, treated negatively, um, and they have no ability to control that themselves, and their parent doesn't have the ability, they may not even uh, uh, have yet got the diagnosis of ADHD, they may be on that journey, right? So by the time they get there and get offered the, the support, whatever that may be, they're already limiting their choices because they love Will I Am and make a judgment about what he said and therefore will never put their mm -hmm. child on drugs. And I'm not, I, I've been struggling with this myself in terms of not my own thoughts. I've never, it's been too long for me to ever consider it. Um, and there's a number of other challenges anyway, I'm not going to go into it now, but, the, um, but for, for my child, it's been something that it, we've been grappling with, but we've started to come back and move forward with more research, more understanding, listening to different yeah. voices, trying to get a measured view so that even if we decide no today, we're enabling our child to have choice and not instilling this idea that it's right or wrong, because there may come a point um, as they hit their teens where they may need absolutely need that otherwise we look at risk to mental health eating so all the other things that can come because we're not we're not helping uh, and there's other mindful approaches and mindless approaches and everything else that you can try first but sometimes it's a point uh, where those things are really not helping and we have to think about the human in that instance so thank you Thank you for sharing that. Listen, I want to. That was such an engaging conversation. I love it. And um, where can they find you, Tom? Where can people come and come and look up some of the information that you share? Book you, get you to come and talk. Yeah. So um, I'm. I don't have a website yet. I'm in the process of building one right now. So the best places to find me are on LinkedIn. Uh, just look for Tom Nicholson, PhD, um, and I should come up um, there in a, with a big ginger beard and a bald head. Um, 
if people are interested in, in booking me or having a conversation, uh, it's tomnicholson at hotmail.co.uk. Tomnicholson at hotmail.co.uk. And um, get in contact. Again, I'm always looking for collaboration to get the story out, to tra challenge that narrative and change the story of ADHD. Because I think that's what we need now. We need, this fun we need a fundamental societal shift. And the work that you're doing, Theo, is exactly what we need right now. The way that, you know, you and Amanda and the, the book is something I recommend all the time. It's actually just behind me on the shelf just over there. Like, it, there is so much work so much work to be done and we are going in the an incredible direction it's i've never seen things so good for our neurodivergent population but i also continually hear stories every day of discrimination and stigma and challenge and unnecessarily so um so yeah thank you very much for having a theory it's been an absolute treat and i know we could have talked for hours and hours longer but i've Got such busy, busy lives. We'll I think. Again, well. we'll do it again. Don't worry. So like, like, this is the wonderful thing. Now you've you've got to a point. Um, you're now looking at the next stage and phase, so we can catch up again, and there'll be other channels uh, where we can do that. Listen, absolutely amazing to have you on, Tom. I'm glad it took this long um, because it's made for a really rich and meaningful conversation. And sometimes, you know, you need to step back to really step forwards and embrace. Um, the wonder of these incredible people that you meet along the way. So thank you. Thank you very much. Again, I'm looking forward to the next time we'll have a chat in any context. It's always good fun. Brilliant. Cheers, Tom. All right. See you. Take care, Theo. You've been listening to Neurodiversity, Eliminating Kryptonite, Enabling Superheroes. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can like, share, comment, find us anywhere on any good podcasting host. You can also do some further reading up and buy my book, uh, co-authored with Professor Amanda Kirby, Neurodiversity at Work. You can get it on Amazon with Kogan Page, our publisher, and pretty much any other good bookstore. Enjoy. Look forward to your feedback and keep listening to the show. Thank you.